1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? When I was growing up, there weren't a lot of things I called my own. The youngest of four girls, most of my clothes were hand-me-downs. We weren't poor, not deprived. We just didn't have or need a lot of things. So it made it all the more special when I got that stuffed koala bear for Christmas. Zoom forward a few decades... And minus the supply chain issues, polling shows many Canadians are on track to buy their way straight through the holidays. So what does all that have
1: to do with climate change? Per capita consumption is now the strongest accelerator of global environmental impact. You know, we really need to bring it back and put it at the center of our conversations around sustainability and climate change.
2: This week, we revisit how boundless buying and endless economic growth have an enormous impact on the planet and how to slow it all down to save the future. So my name is Mauree
0: Akimatsusaka, and I am currently an administrator for the
2: Buy Nothing Mount Pleasant West Group. Buy Nothing. It's a hyper-local but growing global movement. People like Maury set them up, typically on Facebook, and then members post stuff they want to get rid of, and not junk.
0: Oh, wow, I've given away like iPads, tablet that that I was no longer using. I've given away lots of different food items, uh, clothing, even sports gear, for example, that just again had been laying in my storage room. I have snowshoes that usually are just sitting uh, in my apartment and I've given those to different people so that they don't have to go out and buy a new pair of snowshoes when they use it maybe once every five years.
2: Now, just to be clear, she wasn't giving those snowshoes away. She's lending them out. That's another part of the program in her Vancouver neighbourhood. People are also encouraged to ask for the things they need. You know, the things that you think might be trash could be used as
0: easily for by someone else for awesome purposes. Um, somebody asked for uh, the liquid that you get from chickpeas in
1: mm-hmm. the can.
0: And that is often used by vegan uh, folks as an egg replacement. And I had no idea that that was, that was a thing, that thing that the, you would usually
2: pour down the drain is, is someone else's gold. Maury's not in this to save bucks or just acquire more stuff. She says this is part of the way she and others can share, build community, keep things out of the landfill, and help the planet.
0: I think extending the life of our things is a huge part of you know combating climate change and really reducing our ecological footprint. And you know the more that we can connect with other people, the more that we can share in the abundance that we already have in our communities instead of going out and, and just
2: conspicuously consuming. These kinds of groups popped up a lot during the early part of the pandemic as people hunkered down at home and started thinking about what they really needed to get by. Now, though, the buzz of economic recovery is drawing people back out to shops, malls, and even car dealerships. For J.B. McKinnon, the pandemic was a test run for a thought experiment he was already contemplating. What would the world and the climate look like if people put their credit cards and wallets down? His new book, The Day the World Stops Shopping, grapples with that question. Hello there. Hello you were actually wrapping up your research for this book when the pandemic hit. How did that compare to the world that you were imagining as you were doing the research
1: for the book? Well, that's really the question I suddenly had to ask myself. I've been playing out this thought experiment for a couple of years, really, in my mind and on the page, and then got to see whether the kinds of things I was predicting would happen if the world stops shopping um, would, in fact, do that. And, And they did in a bunch of pretty important ways. The lockdowns and the quarantines, particularly in the early part of the pandemic, did effectively end people's ability to consume. And so there was this really kind of a brief window before the consumer economy reoriented itself to really see what the world looks like without so much shopping going on. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and now this process of reopening is happening, shopping's starting to pick up. What do you think of the hopes and plans for economic recovery?
1: I'm not surprised, obviously, that people are returning to the shops. There's really powerful forces compelling us to do that. The $600 billion advertising industry is revving itself back up. And people have gone through a period of austerity, and they do want to celebrate a little bit. You know, my sense, certainly from the people I'm talking to, is that people are returning to that full throttle consumption pretty reluctantly and with a lot of mixed feelings. I'm just hearing a lot of people saying, I don't necessarily want to get back to shopping and spending and traveling nonstop.
2: But there is that argument from some that that, that's exactly what is needed to ensure that Canada returns to a healthy economic place.
1: Yeah, that is exactly the model that we live under right now. I mean, we're consumers in a consumer economy. That is necessary at this moment. You know, my book plays out in the early chapters as a bit of a disaster movie, because if you do stop shopping, uh, the system as we've built it does fail. What I'm hoping is that this period of mixed feelings and ambivalence about consumerism opens up an opportunity to talk about ways we might do this differently.
2: Right, and I I want to get to that. But I'm wondering how you arrive at the conclusion that what we consume is an underlying driver behind climate change.
1: Well, the UN International Resource Panel reported that in 2019. They took a look at the numbers and said that around the turn of the millennium, consumption surpassed population as the greatest driver of environmental problems. The next year, there's a group of scientists writing in the science journal Nature They issued what they called a warning on affluence, meaning that the majority of studies these days agree that per capita consumption is now the strongest accelerator of global environmental impact. So the evidence is there. You know, we really need to bring it back and put it at the center of our conversations around sustainability and climate change.
2: Is it as simple as powering everything from renewable energy?
1: It's not that simple (laughs) because you know, it's very difficult, I think, to power everything with renewable energy if we're going to perpetually grow the consumption, not only you know, in the wealthiest nations of the world, but also bring everybody else up to our standard of living. And even if we take energy out of the equation, the demand for other resources, water, minerals, wood you name it gravel gold the consumption of all of these things is accelerating with tremendous impacts on waterways on non-human life what's the answer (laughs) we need to innovate we need to create a new system that allows us to consume less and maybe an easy example of that is looking at something like the way we make products we've been heading in the direction of more and more disposable goods but we have the option of moving in the direction of more and more durable goods. It could mean things like mandating lifespan labeling on products, it could mean mandating that products be made repairable, uh, updatable. We could build the social environmental costs of products into the price of those products.
2: Are there any places in the world that are actually living this kind of reality now?
1: There's not really anywhere that is doing a measured, planned approach to reducing consumption. But we do see places around the world where consumption is radically less, of course, than it is in a country like Canada. One place I went to for the book was Ecuador, where the average person is consuming at a globally sustainable level. And by that, I mean, if we all lived like the average Ecuadorian, we would only need the resources that we have available on the planet right now. And yet Ecuador is also, rated by the United Nations a highly developed nation. So they have hit a good balance between their level of development and the sustainability of their consumption. Life in Ecuador would look familiar to anybody who remembers the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s in Canada. So for example, the average Ecuadorian flies very infrequently or not at all. Many of them would not own a car. People walk, they use transit more. You name it, they're doing a little bit less of it than we are, or in some cases, a lot less.
2: Let's come back to Canada and talk about this idea of stopping shopping. Um, Trying to make individuals do that might be very, very difficult because there's science, isn't there, on how shopping affects people's brains?
1: Yeah, we certainly get a little dopamine hit from buying things. And uh, if you string enough of those dopamine hits together, then it it's a pretty reasonable facsimile of happiness. <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh, I get the feeling you don't think it's an enduring
2: happiness.
1: (laughs) I mean, what the science shows certainly just as clearly is that an orientation towards materialist values that are focused on possessions and income and status does not make us happy. And this is what we did see at the outset of the pandemic. We saw that cut off from consumer culture, people really rapidly made this shift towards baking sourdough loaves, which is the kind of thing that is inherently satisfying. You saw people engaging with issues larger than themselves. You know, There's been so much social change during the pandemic. And part of the reason for that may be the fact that people had a values reorientation.
2: So what would have to change? What steps would have to happen to have people live that new way of life that you advocate as being good for the
1: planet? If we look even just at the economy, for example, Myself and Peter Victor, who's a Toronto economist, we popped a slowdown in shopping into his computer model of the Canadian economy. And the first thing that happened was a total disaster. (laughs) We saw that classic collapse towards recession or depression. But then he tweaked a few things. He increased the investment in green technology, which can lower the impacts of the consumption that we do do. He reduced working hours per person to control unemployment. He spread the wealth of the economy to prevent serious poverty. He slowed economic growth. And suddenly, it was possible to have a functioning Canadian economy without anybody slipping into serious poverty or being left behind. So we know that this is possible. It's just that we need to start talking about, well, how do we do that? Do we look at shortening the work week? Do we look at redistribution of wealth? We certainly know that inequality of income is a major driver of how much we consume. What this has really driven home to me is that it's not really about us as individuals. We shouldn't be hard on ourselves or on other people for being consumers in a consumer society. There are tremendous forces at work that have put us in this position. What we really need to look at are these kinds of system level changes I mean, that said, there are all kinds of benefits to choosing to live more simply. And I talked to a lot of people who've been practicing voluntary simplicity type lifestyles for decades. And I mean, I, I found them as individuals really attractive people to spend time with because they are investing their time and energy into human relationships. They're very good at that. I had the feeling when I spent time among people who were living lower-consuming lifestyles in various places around the world, that they were better at being human than I was, frankly.
2: Really thought-provoking stuff. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive,
3: like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor. I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Shopping, as people know it, isn't going to end anytime soon. But people in the world of business have ideas about how to change habits and keep the economy on an even keel. Tima Bansal is a professor at the Ivy Business School at Western University and the Canada Research Chair in Business Sustainability. Hello. Hi, Laura. One thing that we see in a lot of the assumptions and the reports coming out of the COP meetings, the climate agreements, is an assumption that economic growth will always keep happening, even as the world is trying to cut back on emissions. So how do those two things go together?
3: That's a really good question, because at the heart of the carbon emissions is the relationship to the physical materials that are produced. So there's two ways to gain growth. One is through just more stuff being produced. The other way is through, let's say, a knowledge economy. So that if you move ideas and you sell ideas, that doesn't necessarily have to lead to the consumption of more stuff. And so you can decouple growth from carbon emissions. And the question is, uh, how do you decouple growth from uh, the consumption of more stuff? And that, that is really where there's trade-offs to be made. There's, there's a large contingent that says, well, we have to degrowth, We have to slow down growth. We have to consume less. And my own personal view is that it's really hard to get people to consume less. But there's one answer, and I think that that's the only way forward, and that's through the circular economy. I'm
2: going to ask you to try to tease that out a little bit more. What is a circular economy? So when we produce
3: stuff, most companies, and especially historically, what they've done is they take materials from the earth they manufacture into something. And then after it's done, it is sent back to the earth. And so that's the take, make waste, linear economy that we all know. And when material goods, virgin materials are cheap, then that's the way to go. The circular economy says, well, let's redefine waste as something that's actually usable, and then put that back into the economy. So we're not taking virgin materials out, but we're taking the end of life stuff and putting it back into the economy. So that makes it circular now. But here's some statistics that really make you think. Most of us believe that when we put our plastics into the recycling bin, that they're being recycled and everybody else does that. But 91% end up either in landfills or in oceans. 6% of our current economy is actually based on materials that were previously in the economy. That means 94% are from virgin materials.
2: That's scary. Those are really striking numbers. There's no doubt about it. So uh, why hasn't that changed with the understanding of the need for recycling in the economy and the kinds of things that you're talking about?
3: A huge part of why that doesn't happen is costs. And so it's actually cheaper to use virgin materials. And so that's a huge part of it is that we need to change the pricing of these things. But then there's other things that are really important in Canada. One is that we have three different jurisdictions. We have municipalities that collect waste. We have the provinces that would have to determine what the waste policies are. We have the federal government that sets the targets. And so we have three different levels of government. If you don't have harmonization among levels of government, that's a problem. It's the complexity of that system. And that's partly why things don't change, why we have so much stuff that's wasted. You
2: make it sound intractable,
3: is it? No, it's not intractable, but I think it's hard. We need to design products differently so that we think about what plastics, for example, are being used or what electronics are being used. We need to think about keeping the products in use. So thinking about designing products as well, so that they have a longer life rather than obsolescence. And then we have to think about the consumer behavior of the disposal and then we had to think about all of those organizations that would take that waste and then find a way of reintroducing it into the economy. And so it requires collective action. And I think that's possible, but it just requires so many of us to work in the same direction.
2: Where can we see some ideas of what is being done?
3: There's a, an organization called Loop and it's owned by TerraCycle. They've partnered with Loblaws and This partnership means that when Loblaws sells some of their food stuff, and this includes Haagen-Dazs or Heinz ketchup or cereal, what Loop does is it upcycles the containers that these materials come in and so that they're reusable. Loop has those containers, sends them to your door. You use the Haagen-Dazs, eat your Haagen-Dazs in this beautiful metal insulated container once it's done, you put it back on your doorstep. FedEx picks it up, sends it to Loop, which washes and sanitizes it, fills it up with more ice cream, puts it back on your doorstep. Do you know what that sounds
2: like? What that sounds like the milkman.
3: It does. It does. And I love it. I'm old enough to remember the milkman and I love that. And I think that's one thing that's really cool about the circular economy is not only does it save the environment. Not only does it create economic value, but it builds community. It makes us regional,
2: local, community-oriented. And
3: I think that once people catch on, they will do
2: it. But there's a couple of things that that you've raised that there might be some resistance to. You talked about changing the pricing, and I'm pretty much sure you're talking about making things more expensive.
3: Uh, It means making virgin materials more expensive. Or you could do that through a carbon tax. That's not often palatable, you're right. But it can also mean that we find value in waste. And so we can make waste more expensive. Or we can just, there are organizations that are saying there's stuff that's going to landfill that doesn't need to, and there's opportunity here. I'm going to give you another example that doesn't necessarily require more expense. This is actually my favorite, and it's in the Guelph area. So Wellington Brewery makes beer, and all of their spent grain would normally go to landfill is actually taken to a producer of insects. So they take the spent grain, feed it to the insects. The insects are then fed to fish, the trout that are Zumi agriculture nearby. The trout then can feed people, but the fish poop from the trout goes to a potato farm in Fergus. So they're used to fertilize potatoes, grows potatoes. And then they're also used the spent grain from Wellington Brewery into making sourdough bread. So now there's a Guelph restaurant that serves trout, fish and chips, potatoes, with beer and bread. (laughs) Isn't that fantastic? Now there is an opportunity. It's circularity is almost a no brainer, but it requires a very different way of thinking.
2: But it also, don't you think, I mean, you suggested this, it requires governments to work together.
3: Yeah. No, it requires governments to work together. It requires businesses to think more innovatively. It requires them to think about their products, not when they produce them, but also at their end of life and what will happen to them. But then it really brings us back to providing services, to recognizing
2: that the material world matters. It does really sound like stepping back in time to build a better future in a way. I love that. I absolutely love that. Stepping back in time to build a better future. It's been really interesting talking with you about all of this. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. It's been a real treat talking to you. You know the old saying sometimes less is actually more? Lydie Klotz has studied that a lot from Lego blocks on up. He's a professor at the University of Virginia and the author of the new book Subtract, the untapped science of less. Hello.
4: Hi, Laura. You
2: explore the idea that people are quicker to add than to subtract. What does that mean?
4: To put this into an example that was really is tangible. um, I was playing Legos with my son, and uh, we were building a bridge. And the problem we had was that the bridge wasn't level. And one of the columns was shorter than the other columns. So I turned around behind me to add a block to the shorter column. That's this tendency to add quicker to add. Um, And my son, this was like the one time in history that he thought to subtract, which is why it became a useful example for me, but he thought to subtract from the longer column. So these were two, you know, equally good ways to make this situation better. And the adding one came to mind much more quickly for me. And we've since done 10s of 1000s of hours worth of research to show that this is the thought process that happens. um, And across different contexts, things more consequential than Lego bridges.
2: So how did you test it?
4: We tested it in a number of different ways. I mean, we gave people writing examples, asked them to improve them. We gave people recipes that, hey, improve this recipe, travel itineraries, improve the travel itinerary. Um, We did have Lego versions. And people just add, 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 which, you know, not surprising if you're an observer of the world.
2: The question here really is why? Why do people do that?
4: Uh, There could be a lot of reasons, and that's what I look into in the book. Um, First and foremost, I mean, we just need to remind ourselves that this is a a mental. The way we make decisions and the way we make judgments is sequential in our in our minds, and so there are a lot of cases where we think first of one thing and not of another thing, and this seems to be one of those cases. In the book, I talk about some evolutionary reasons that there could be for this, some cultural reasons, Um, and so there's a lot of evolutionary factors, for example, we were wired to acquire things, right? Uh, Accumulating food, uh, even stockpiling food has been a helpful evolutionary trait, an explanation for why we might not think of subtracting even though it it can be better.
2: Let's connect this up to climate change, which is what we talk about on the program. What you're you're testing is on a small scale, but this, the problem of of human made climate change happens on a huge scale. How do you connect Subtraction to climate change
4: I mean that's the reason I started this research was because I saw this as a fundamental mindset that's underlying not just climate change but a lot of our environmental problems um, and the problem with a lot of these environmental issues climate change you know nitrogen cycles some of these other planetary tipping points that we've exceeded is that we we've done too much we've gone past the point of like a safe operating conditions for the planet and so the only solution on the on the largest scale is to subtract something is to start start pulling back so for for carbon dioxide and climate change you know now that we're at parts per million above what scientists think is safe we need to think about not just adding more slowly co2 to the atmosphere right so all all of our efficiency improvements which we should definitely continue to do they basically are saying we're going to add co2 less Less fast to the atmosphere, um, but we also you know just need to start pulling c o two out of the atmosphere and of course we 're considering things to do that um, and you know you 've covered a number of them on your show, for everything from you know maintaining swamps so that they can pull more c o two out of the atmosphere to growing forests to some more aggressive engineering strategies to do that, but for a long time we 've been overlooking those options, so I think at the biggest scale that 's an example of subtracting just something as simple as when you're looking at a coal-fired power plant for example and then the next thought is like okay well how do we make this better it's contributing to carbon dioxide uh, emissions in the atmosphere which is you know the reason for climate change you know one solution is hey let's try to add carbon capture and storage onto this Um, and then of course the subtractive solution is like let's get rid of the coal-fired power plant in the first place Um, so on all these different levels it should be part of our toolkit for addressing climate change. And I guess this is a a good time to bring up that I'm not anti-adding. And I'm I'm agnostic on adding versus subtracting. I think we need to add things to deal with climate change. But what our research has found and what the book describes is how we overlook systematically this basic option for changing things from how they are to how we want them to be.
2: I'm not meaning to be flip, but you've added... To things by writing a book about the power of subtraction. <laughs> I'm wondering what B-flip, what you yeah. what you've taken away uh, and how it's affected your own life. Have you taken things away in your own life?
4: It's hard. Um, I think I've always. I hope I've always been pretty good on the kind of personal consumption front. Um, I think the thing that help writing the book. The thing that it's really helped me with is how I think about using my time, which is, you know, our most precious resource, obviously. And so I think I've gotten better at subtracting to-dos, so stop doings.
2: Are you and Ezra cutting back on the Legos at all?
4: (laughs) No, (laughs) no. We've got to draw the line somewhere, Laura. We can't, uh, you know, can't be perfect.
2: All right, we'll we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time.
4: Sure. And thank you for the work you do, Laura.
2: And that does it for us this week. Thanks to the What on Earth team, associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders, producer Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wilson. Monisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
4: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.